In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Good morning. Happy Pentecost. Thank you to all you who wore red. That's awesome. Way back in the 1970s, I was a religion major at Reed College and trying to decide whether or not I wanted to go into the priesthood. So uh, on a summer break, I made an appointment with the head honcho priest of the very large and impressive Episcopal Church back in Minnesota. This priest was a very impressive preacher, given to impressive stem-winding sermons, and he took me on a tour of the impressive building with its impressive limestone columns and impressive organ. And at the end of the tour, he said something very impressive to me, which I'll never forget. He said, son, if you ever want to run a place like this, you're going to have to sell a little bit of your soul to the devil. I'll never forget how deeply offended and shocked I was by this. I walked out of his office wondering, how could this man be a priest? So I learned three things that day. First, some clergy are just huge blowhard narcissists who love to shock their young charges. Second, don't ever let a single person, no matter how far up the food chain he is, Don't let them ever define what the church is for you. And third, you know, people can have wildly different expectations for the church. And these expectations are worth exploring because when left unexamined, our differing expectations can drive an enormous wedge between us. So today, on this Pentecost Sunday, on this day they call the birthday of the church, I find myself wondering about our expectations for church. When are we expecting too much? When are we expecting too little? And more to the point, is there any kind of, you know, godly balance between our expectation that the church live up to its lofty ideals and our more adult understanding that we have to live in the real world where, after all, Jesus did counsel us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. They say that Pentecost is the birthday of the church, but really it's the birthday of the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, as our wonderful presiding bishop likes to say. First there was the movement and the institution came later, sometime around the first capital campaign, I believe. So when we think about our expectations for the church, we have to ask, which church are we talking about? You know, the institution with all its assets to invest and payrolls to meet and buildings to maintain and lawyers to remind us of all our risks and liabilities, or the Christian movement, such as the disorganized and confused band of disciples we heard about this morning, sitting around someone's living room and then suddenly seized by tongues of fire. Which church are we talking about, the movement or the institution? Typically, we hear this preference expressed most clearly by those who say they are spiritual but not religious. 
Whenever I hear that phrase, I think it's like people who believe in healing, but they would never go to a hospital. Folks who say they believe in learning, but they would never go to a school. Because, you know, schools and hospitals can be, you know, ugly institutions with their bureaucracies and unions. Schools have tenure battles and binge drinking fraternities. But that doesn't stop us from sending our kids to them to get educated. But when it comes to church, it's commonplace for people to dismiss the vast universe of spiritual wisdom that's found here because it's also an institution that inevitably fails to live up to, let's just admit it, the extremely high standards set for us by our young founder. When we, conf when we confuse the movement with the institution, all kinds of heartbreak ensues. We walk into these beautiful rooms with their thick, well-maintained stone walls on a Sunday, and we're yearning for a spirit of a movement. You know, we want to be caught up in that life-giving clarity, the singularity of vision, that unity of purpose that is a movement. And of course, what we find are pledge campaigns and standing committees and personnel manuals. And I have to say, it doesn't help what, when, it doesn't help much when the church itself sends mixed signals as to what to expect. On Pentecost, for example, the institutional church wistfully looks back to those pre-institutional days with what I think is a dishonest nostalgia, as if it actually had any intention of going back to the days before buildings and budgets. We ritually beat our breasts over the sin of having become an institution, and then a magical solution is proposed. A very convenient magical solution because it sounds pious and is theologically correct, and yet at the same time it relieves us of all responsibility and has little chance of actual success, which is that we appeal to the Holy Spirit to return and turn us once again magically into a movement. Consider, for example, these words by a usually dependable theologian Speaking about Pentecost, he writes, isn't the return of the Holy Spirit the only hope we have? Isn't the return of the Holy Spirit the only hope we have? Staring down the multi-barreled gun of drugs, crime, recession, deficits, racism, sexism, sexual abuse, unemployment, the poisoning of the environment, and feigned leadership? That's a lot of barrels in that gun and a lot of work for the Holy Spirit. My theologian friend, I'm afraid, has missed the point. The point is not that we should be sitting around longing for the return of the Holy Spirit to solve our problems. The point is that the Spirit has already come. And guess what? It has not magically solved all our problems. So now what? The thing is that it's what we do with the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. And unfortunately, institutions being what they are and humans being what we are, 
we usually end up trying to use the Holy Spirit to suit our own interests. And we keep the transformative power of the Holy Spirit at arm's length. Now, lest you begin to suspect that I have become just as cynical as that blowhard priest I encountered in my youth, let me share this. <clears throat> One of the advantages of being around the church as long as I have is that I've witnessed genuine outbreaks of the Holy Spirit within the church, movements of real transformation that made a real difference in the world. In Chicago, for example, in the late 1960s, there was this tiny, dying Swedish Lutheran congregation consisting of about 15 ancient Swedish widows. The church was set in the middle of a neighborhood that had recently experienced white flight, and there was talk of moving the church out to the suburbs where most of the white families had already moved. But before they made that decision, they took an inventory of their neighborhood and they discovered this crying need for affordable housing. So they prayed about it and some kind of Holy Spirit moment happened because by the end of that meeting, they had decided to mortgage their church building and use the money to purchase and renovate a rundown apartment building next door. They even found a contractor who was willing to teach construction skills to their unemployed neighbors. And the thing took off, and soon the building was fully renovated. So they refinanced the building again, and then again, and then again, and so on, until 20 years later, when I visited them, they were one of the largest nonprofit housing developers and job training sites in Chicago. I was there on a Sunday morning, and the place was packed and rocking with gospel music. And in the middle of it all was this beloved, elderly, white Lutheran pastor and his sister who had emerged as the driving force behind the whole enterprise. I've never felt the presence of the Holy Spirit as clearly as when I visited that church. It's experiences like that that make me realize that, you know what, this, this duality I posed earlier, this tension between the movement and the institution, that's a flawed way of seeing things because the real power of the Holy Spirit that I've witnessed with my own eyes has arrived when institutions have leveraged their assets to create new institutional solutions to real-world problems. That's what happened in Chicago, and that's what happens here in Portland, Oregon, and Trinity Cathedral. For example, when this cathedral decided to use and leverage its beautiful kitchen and large meeting hall to serve lunches to our neighbors, and the whole thing mushroomed into a small army of cooks and gleaners and servers happily feeding hundreds of folks every week. That's the Holy Spirit at work in our institution. When Bishop Benjamin Morris arrived in Portland about 150 years ago with this commitment to educating girls and healing the sick, the Holy Spirit helped him to create what is now known as Oregon Episcopal School and the Legacy Good Samaritan Medical Center. 
thriving institutions that change and save hundreds of lives every day. That's the Holy Spirit at work on an institutional level. In my own life, I was deeply privileged to witness the election of Barbara Harris as the first female bishop in the Anglican Communion. And there was a lot of organizing and persuading and lobbying that went on so that her election succeeded. And some said it was a political election, but I say it was nothing but the Holy Spirit at work in the institution of the church. Jean Robinson, Catherine Jeffords Shorey, Michael Curry, profound movements of the Holy Spirit that changed the world. And when five years ago this epiphany, this multi-million dollar institution chose an improbably young gay man to lead it, that was all Holy Spirit. And by the way, we haven't done this, but congratulations, Nathan, on your fifth anniversary last January. Some of you might remember that just before COVID hit, we had received the results from a very well-done congregational study, which basically told us that we were among the healthiest and happiest congregations in the entire country across any denomination. The consultants told us that we were in this very rare and envious position, a position where you could, we could stretch ourselves and take some risks. We should not squander this moment, those consultants told us. We should be thinking creatively and ambitiously about our next big project. We were all just beginning to imagine another one of those big Holy Spirit moments. And then COVID hit, and we had to pour all our energies into adapting to this new reality. And let me tell you, the Holy Spirit has been with us throughout this ordeal lending us resiliency and creativity and faith in this institution as we adapted and stayed together. And now, finally, we're beginning to imagine the day when we can take off these damn masks and sing to the glory of God again. And I can't wait to see what the Holy Spirit has in store for us. On this Pentecost Sunday, I invite you to return to that pre-COVID imagining. Let's get back to dreaming together with the Holy Spirit, and let's celebrate the birthday of this marvelous, spirit-filled, Jesus movement institution. Happy Pentecost. Somebody say amen.